Oh no, you feel betrayed. I hate it when that happens. And you're so cute too. Feelings are not my concern. Only the safety of the Enterprise and her crew. No feelings, even without a Kolinar. Impressive. Where's the real Dr. Aspen now? Probably still wandering around the uninhabited planet I dumped them on. What? It's not like I killed them. Where are the colonists? Oh, them? Imaginary. I made them up. I told a nice little story that I knew would bring you out here, and you believe me. Frankly, that's on you. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast for two Trek fans. Step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton begging Cam, please stop. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, The Serene Squall. Uh, Cam, uh, that uh, pirate scene that you that you saw there uh with one anson mount uh, i assume that's what you're doing it wasn't just a spur of the moment uh little known fact that was actually based on a jeffrey hunter cut scene from the original pilots <laughs> uh you know like he just wouldn't stop talking to that pirate voice they had to tell him to tame it down and then eventually you know i, I guess anson mount found the original um footage and he figured he wanted to do a bit of an ode to one uh jeffrey hunter the original captain pike that first meeting with the Telosians was very different in that cut footage. <laughs> uh, in fact, the Telosians, they, they stood on uh, everybody's shoulders, much like pirates, uh, during that initial uh, that initial take, which is a little strange. I am I am glad they cut the pirate on his shoulder as well. That was a little strange. Yeah. Um, well, Cam... Uh, or the, sorry, did I say pirate? I said parrot. Yeah. I, wanted to... I was a little confused yeah. by that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, have you been drinking a little bit too much of the grog, Cameron? <laughs> Oh my god. Boy, am I having a day. Because earlier today I mi- uh, mixed up uh, Macbeth and Hamlet, so now I'm mixing up pirate and parrot. So, oh, what a Philistine uh, you are. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, oh, just butchering the classics here. But yes, this was an interesting episode in that it really, it very much like evoked sort of the campier types of episodes in TOS, which by and large, no one's favorites, but ones that also are kind of a touchstone of classic Trek, where you would have these hours of kind of like silly pirate and that sort of like swashbuckling adventures on star trek well this one it was touch and go for me for a little while like i was just like oh, this scene is a little flat and i'm like oh my gosh are we gonna just have like a tholian web redo and i was just mm. like uh and i uh, cam after we walked out of jurassic world's uh dominion last week <laughs> i i just i my eyes couldn't stop rolling so far in the back of my head that they were staring at my brain just with how cynical this nostalgia was, I was just like, can we please stop it? And thankfully, this was not an episode that was trying to do, you know, their own, um, you know, kind of um, version of like the Wrath of Khan, like we saw uh, a couple weeks of, uh, ago with uh, Memento Mori, uh, which I I know I'm in the minority. I, I just, that one didn't quite do it for me the way that uh, it did for so many other people, because I was just like, I, I want Strange New Worlds to be doing its own thing. This seemed, you know, kind of classic invasion episode, but uh, it, it was doing its own thing, and I, I got into it a little bit as, as it went further on, especially with the reveal of uh, of Counselor or Doctor Aspen, uh, who I, I I was questioning why she was walking around in a tracksuit with zippers, 
as a, <laughs> a, a some sort of diplomatic official. No longer questioning that after we got to the big twist of this episode. I was also wondering about the EDM music playing when she was, I guess, working out or something. I was like, well, that's odd. Well, I guess it makes sense she was wearing a tracksuit because if she was going to go straight to the gym to uh, like pump some weights. So, <laughs> Yeah, I thought this was like a really fun take on sort of the, I mean, in many ways, this episode could have, with a just slight rewrite, been a Harry Mudd story. They could have easily slotted in Harry Mudd somewhere along the way and had a reveal of him as, you know, the pirate captain. But I thought it was a really fun approach to create a new character who perhaps can be a nemesis going forward. I mean, obviously, she wasn't caught at the end of the episode. So I think that's something that kind of excited me. And Angel, I've never really seen a villain character like this on Star Trek, at least not that's popping to mind initially. And so I, I thought she had a lot of fun in terms of chemistry with uh, Ethan Peck's Spock. And it's the sort of thing I want to see played with more. It's something that, like, I think Star Trek's very, you know, it's good, but it's also often falls back on, like, the serious villains. Um, you look at the Kelvin verse, it's most of those villains are pretty serious. And I like the idea of having kind of a campy villain. And I've seen very mixed response to this episode. I've seen people who really did not like it. And a lot of it is underlining what I typically hear is like bad acting. But what they're talking about is it's a campy villain and camp does not work for all people for sure. I, I didn't think it was bad acting, though. Like I thought, no. um, you know, uh, Canada's version of Rooney Mara. Uh, I'm not sure the actress's name. Uh, yeah, we had Timothy Chalamet, Canadian Timothy Chalamet a couple weeks ago. Now it's a Canadian Rooney Mara. I thought she did a good job. I think she did what the directing called for here. And it totally worked for me in a way that I don't know the. Um, the I, I'm forgetting uh, Margot Kidder's niece's name, but Osira, that acting, uh, that kind of took me out of it when we were talking about Discovery Season 3, uh, which was yet another um, uh, Orion's Invade the Enterprise sort of episode there. Yeah, that was Janet Kidder, and that was a character who, you know, Osira was also kind of that space pirate character, but there was nothing particularly fun about her once they kind of just revealed, no, no, she's just kind of evil. And I like the sense that there's something very amoral about this character. You know, she's clearly villainous in this episode, but you can also see how they could plug her into different episodes and her kind of allegiances could kind of shift and move around. It felt like a character with more flexibility in terms of the long-term goals of Strange New Worlds. In terms of long-term goals here, uh, Cam, I can't believe we bird the lead here. Uh, some uh, rehabilitation, and I mean Vulcan rehabilitation, for one of the most derided characters in all of Star Trek history, bringing back Cybok here. I like it. I don't mind it. I'm like, if you can kind of fix something that maybe did not work in a previous Star Trek adventure, and you know me, I am an apologist for The Final Frontier. I think that is the one Star Trek movie most in spirit of the original series. I'm down to bring Cybok back and, and try to make him, you know, positioned in this universe in a way that we, we could reconsider maybe, perhaps, hopefully, what The Final Frontier means kind of as a, as a legacy for all these decades here. Yeah, Cybok is something that you and I had talked about, like, is Cybok just a completely forgotten character? Like, is Star Trek going to scuttle this character away and never mention them again? And I think it's a really fun idea to take something that, like, didn't quite work in bringing it to the, you know, the silver screen back in 1989. But at the same time, there's like a core of something that could work. And so let's take a different angle on it. And we just had a tease here at the very end of the episode but I'm really excited to see what they can do with this character. I had thought with the way, you know, Memento Mori set up like the Gorn, 
the Gorn are probably going to factor into like the finale. But I think having this episode here now makes me go, oh, there's like a lot of potential just going forward in Strange New Worlds of recurring antagonists. You know, the Gorn, obviously, but now having Cybok out there, having Angel. I'm just really excited to see how all of these antagonists could pay off in the future. The only thing that I'm concerned about, though, is the VFX here and whether or not uh, the de-aging VFX on Lawrence Luckinbill, uh, who played Cybok, <laughs> you know, back in the Final Frontier in 1989, if those de-aging VFX will work on him to the degree that, you know, we saw in like Robert De Niro in The Irishman. It took me a little bit to kind of get used to it. But after a while, I, I could, you know, just go with it there. So we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> is Lawrence Luckinville even alive anymore, Cam? I don't know. When you said that, I was questioning that myself. Uh, it's entirely possible. Why don't I look um, it up? Um, listeners, it, uh, we're just having fun here. I, but uh, no disrespect to the... Um, I, I've got it. He's I've got alive. He, he is alive. He's coming back for the finale. Woohoo! He was born in 1934, so he's what, like... He's younger than oh Shatner. Yeah, so he's in his late 80s at this point. So, uh, well, never rule it out. Okay. Never rule it out. Okay. Can't wait. I do appreciate, like, we only saw him from the back, and they made sure that they gave him kind of the, the cyborg haircut, you know, the kind of the scruffiness there. Yeah. Do you think they've cast an actor yet? Yes, I do. I, I think by the, I don't, I think they would have, because uh, I remember, okay, the, the uh, TV series Dollhouse, it was uh, Joss Whedon, Eliza Dushku, uh, show uh, it only lasted two seasons it actually showed a lot of potential in the second season but they cast this pretty much a bodybuilder that you only saw from like the back for this one brief glimpse and he was revealed to be kind of the the great villain of the series and then they later on cast i kid you not alan tudyk to play that role <laughs> and alan tudyk right. was complaining so much about how he just had to like get ripped for this so i'm not saying that uh, we're gonna get ripped cyborg but I, <laughs> no no you are you are yeah but i i would assume that you get um you, they have an actor in mind already I, I, whether or not maybe it makes this some sort of stand-in but i i think they pretty much know what at least the measurements of this guy is going to be this actor here yeah, and I would guess they've probably got their Cybok episode, at least in the pipeline. Like, they had some ideas that they were probably setting up here. I, I don't think that this was just, yeah, introduce it and we'll see what we do later. I, th I think they probably had an idea. Well, I think they were planting the seeds, you know, like yeah. a couple episodes ago with regards to just having to bring, uh, you know, she was one who had to track down that, uh, uh, that Vulcan criminal, for example. And so they're mm -hmm. setting her up on kind of the rehab colony here. Um you know, and speaking of Tepring, now, do you think the writers had any intention of bringing Tepring into the orbit of the series as much as they have so far in season one? She She's pretty much appeared in half the episodes. I, I just wonder if she, like, the actress is great. Uh, she has chemistry with Ethan Peck, and she's bringing this kind of dynamic, Tepring is bringing this dynamic out of Spock that we don't usually see. And it's fun to see him so uncomfortable so much of the time. Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I have actually talked to people who are watching this show who are, you know, some of them are pretty new to Star Trek. Um, some of them are just kind of, you know, say casual TNG viewers. And they're really responding to the T'Pring character and have actually brought up her by name and said they've really liked her. So it, I do wonder if it is a little bit of half and half where it's like half. 
introduce her in the pilot. Oh, we really like what this actress is doing. There's more here. Let's write to that. And then also just 50% of this character is like engaged to Spock in a mock time. It's kind of hard to just ignore her throughout the run of the series. Like she has to play a fairly, you know, regularly recurring character because otherwise it doesn't really make sense. But they really have, I think, struck gold with this. And I think they've done a fantastic job of giving so much more complexity to, the, to this character who didn't have a ton to do in a mock time. And it was kind of one note, like she worked within the context of that particular story, but there wasn't a lot of three-dimensional character writing going on there. And I think as good as Arlene Martel was in that episode, what they're doing here is actually making this character sympathetic. We're understanding her point of view. And it feels like this character could go through a journey because I mean, I don't know, her and Spock were still engaged years down the road, so we could see T'Pring, like, consistently throughout the run of this series, really. Are, are they pretty much just trying to build a case for why she would want to ditch Spock, cut him loose by the time <laughs> we got to a mock time where you know, we see him making out with other women, he's choosing work over her all the time. I, you know, maybe we kind of understand her motivation just a little bit better as we inch towards kind of the, the timeline closer to a mock time. Yeah, we see her as a very supportive partner here, learning about like human sexuality and reading like Henry James. And like, it does like beg the question, this character is coming across as someone who's like, you know, obviously thinking a lot about Spock and very supportive as a partner. How long can they string out like a Spock who's kind of awkward in, in this relationship? Like, it's tough because they are engaged years down the road. Like, what do they do with this relationship over the next, you know, few seasons i almost wonder if maybe they introduced her a little too early just knowing the time gap between where we are right now and where we are in season two of uh, the original series I, I think we're talking about six or seven years and i wonder if they they'd introduced her in season three or season four they're mm. kind of planting the seeds more uh, about you know a them meeting then they're getting engaged and then they're eventual dissolution uh, of that relationship will follow once we catch up to the original series. And I, cause I, I think you bring up a, a good point. Like how often can we kind of hit these interesting notes, which are interesting right now until they kind of feel as if um, they're redundant, they're getting old. We're, we're doing kind of the same thing again and again. And, and you ask yourself, well, why did they not break it off sooner than they did eventually? Yeah. Um, it does feel like the sort of thing that could run out of steam and, and maybe even frustrate some viewers who aren't familiar with where the, sh you know, the story of Spock is going because they may be really on board with those characters and then maybe getting frustrated because like, what is going on? Is Spock going to be with Chapel? where we both know that that's also not going to be the case because, you know, you get the sparks of that here, you know, obviously uh, very much so and much more of Chapel's sort of um, slowly revealing, um, you know, fondness for Spock but it's kind of like teasing things that it kind of can't deliver yes it, I, I do want to go back to our smock or smock Spock a mock <laughs> debate about what <laughs> Chapel was uh, talking about at the end with Ortega in terms of what, yeah. when she was saying like maybe I just haven't found the right guy and I think like your interpretation is like she was talking about Spock. My interpretation is like she was talking about her own sexuality as it had been established. She was interested in women as well. And I think what, what we're coming back to, I think it's clear now she was referring to Spock in that moment. Is that uh, kind of more cemented in your mind even more so than it was just a few weeks ago? 
Yeah, yeah. I like this episode seemed to seal that one for me. Yeah, but um, with regards to Chapel, do you get the sense she's just really into unavailable men? Yes, I do. And so, like, you had um, alluded a couple episodes ago about her potential relationship with Dr. Corby. And I'm wondering if, like, in a season, that's something they're going to have to introduce and actually spend time with Dr. Corby, where he can become a bit of a recurring character, kind of like a T'Pring, so that it doesn't feel like this kind of frustrating push-pull with Spock in her. We can actually have her have her own relationship on the side that maybe means something to a viewer. Because otherwise... It's the will they, won't they. Um, well, spoiler, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just hope they the entire time he's on screen, because they, they got to bring him into the series, though. Uh, like He's wearing that awesome jumpsuit that we saw in What Are Little Girls Made Up? That, that is one of my favorite Star Trek jumpsuits of all time. Yeah, yeah. Fan favorite, Corby. I mean, you and I will be very excited when he shows up, as we were for Cybok, but <laughs> I think a lot of people just be scratching their heads. I did have a question, though. Is it impossible within the canon for Spock and Chapel to be together for a short little while. Like yes, but it's Is it Well, go go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering like would that contradict anything? We get that like Chapel is very like lovelorn for Spock in the original series, but that doesn't necessarily mean something couldn't have happened along the way. I like I want to genuinely see her head over heels for Dr. Corby. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. You know, like like as opposed to somebody who's pining for a man she can't have and is using Dr. Corby as some sort of distraction or escape. You know, like I want it to be like a genuine relationship because I, I think that does somebody like Christine Chapel justice there. And, and if you're trying to fit it in the timeline, I mean these these. Starfleet officers, they're away for long periods of time. They find ways of Mm -hmm. making it work, uh, you know, having families and all that. So I I can buy it. And who knows, maybe, you know, you you come back from from the season one uh, finale, season two starts, and Chapel's like, yeah, I just spent the last six months with uh, this great android uh, maker, you know, like, uh, now we're engaged. You know, like, I I can kind of buy that and how it works, but... um, I, I, I'm not actually asking for that because if you do the timeline, it's like what the longest engagement ever. <laughs> yeah. Although I guess Spock, uh, Spock and T'Pring have them beat already. They really do, yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting the way this episode dealt with like Spock going to Chapel for advice and and it, like an ex- another examination of the division in Spock. And I actually thought it was very interesting. The actress playing um, Angel Jesse James Keitel who identifies as non-binary and, but does use the she, her pronouns. So we have been correct in saying she, her, but like um, the idea that this particular actor is talking to Spock about, Hey, you don't have to be Vulcan or human. Like you can be yourself. I thought that was just an interesting element to the episode that, you know, they didn't make too fine a point of it, but I thought it was an interesting exploration into an aspect of Spock that, like, we've never really heard it communicated in that way. It's always been a this or that kind of thing. Well, it's also just, I like when they don't have to hammer home the character beats that they're trying to reach. You know, when T'Pring was like, yeah, it's obvious that you are not in love in Chapel. I never had any doubts. And then Spock gives a bit of a pause. Hmm. And he's like, yeah, of course not. And it's just just the subtlety in Peck's performance right there. 
I, I think it's really wonderful there. And, and then, you know, she follows up and she's like, your human side, I realize it, it gives you strength. You know, there, there's no, there's no way you could have sold that passion of a kiss with it without uh, your, your human side there. So I was like, okay, well, maybe to Pring's not picking up on everything, but I don't know. It, it's, it's those small moments that I, I feel like they seem earned at this point. I, and let me ask you this. Is it earned at this point in the run of Star Trek Strange New Worlds? It, does it feel earned because we've already known these characters for 55 plus years? Or, or is it earned because we met, you know, Spock, you know, back in, in, in season two of Discovery? It's, it's been like four years or so. I think it's earned within Strange New Worlds. Yeah. And I think they've done just such a fantastic job of reintroducing Spock to like a new audience while touching on the themes that you know those of us who followed this character for many 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 years if you know decades like are able to kind of reconnect into like when you look at Spock in the original series he's often a very like messy character you have episodes like a mock time or this side of paradise where he's really grappling with the Vulcan human side and we get to see a version of it here where it's even less refined than what Nimoy is going to do and I think all of these little moments touching on this, they make a lot of sense as to where the character is going, but also are a great entry point for people who aren't ultra, ultra familiar with the character. I think what they're doing here is much more interesting than what, you know, Zach Quinto was given to do in the um, Kelvinverse movies, because they obviously have a little more time here being an episodic TV show. But honestly, like, I just think Ethan Peck is so good at this. And it just feels like a case where the writers know what they have and are writing often kind of complicated material for him to navigate. Speaking of which, it's just him being told to trust his gut and just the, the tension where Spock has to quote-unquote trust his gut and just the way that Peck performs that. I'm just like, I think we've been kind of given a little bit of a gift that we didn't quite realize we had, even though I did like the performance that he delivered in season two of Discovery. But it's just, it's those small little moments that it's just adding so much more to Spock as we know it without kind of diverging from the character as we know him for the last, you know, uh, six decades. One of the moments I really loved was Chapel talking to him in the hallway and saying what she really loved about Vulcans is, you know, they're honest and talking about like how he is an honest man. And yet you see at the end, you know, when he's talking to, um, to, to Pring, like he is capable of lying to a certain aspect, to a certain degree. I mean, that's something that Spock has always had where he's always kind of at war with himself and often lying about himself and who he actually is you know like completely um trying to shut out the human side he's ignoring you know who he actually is and, and often lying to people trying to be 100 percent vulcan so it's an interesting aspect of the character and i loved the way that ethan peck played that moment because you could see kind of behind the eyes that flicker of like acknowledgement that like he could be dishonest with himself but it's also just kind of the comedy stuff like you know, oh, like, yeah. to bring saying, I've been doing research on human sex and then Spock choking <laughs> on the drink. <laughs> like, like, it's believable, though. It's it's not like goofball, like, over-the-top sort of stuff. It's like, I, I can picture, I can picture Leonard Nimoy giving that same performance, too. Yeah, the tone of all of the intro of this, I was like, honestly, when the pirate stuff started, I was like, I don't know that I want this. I just want a whole episode of like Spock having these communications with T'Pring <laughs> and then getting advice from Chapel because this is so much fun. And it's hitting that tone of just like really fun, engaging dialogue and colorful characters that I really love in the original series and Star Trek at its best. And it was really like doing a really good job at evoking that. It was so much fun. 
Well, why don't we keep beating a dead horse here and just point out like what we're talking about here with Strange New Worlds at its best are those smaller character moments when you're, you're you're sitting with these folks and you're getting those kind of subtle beats about what their nature is. It's like, how often do you end an episode of Discovery or Star Trek Picard and you think to yourself, oh man, I'm so glad we hit all those story beats to propel this serialized arc forward. It's, it's like, that's not the stuff that we really care about. It, it's the character stuff. And I think it's just, it, it still just baffles me that it took them five years uh, uh, of live action Star Trek to get to this point in, in which all they're doing is going back to what Star Trek does best. And it just seems like such a simple formula that they've kind of been flubbing for, for like, I, I guess, like seven seasons worth of episodes at this point. Yeah, I, I don't get it. Like, you can't imagine an episode of Discovery ending with, like, you know, Burnham doing a pirate voice or something. Like, honestly. <laughs> now I will. That, that's all I'll imagine, though. Yar, let's fly. <laughs> yeah, like, you just can't imagine that. I mean, partly I did wonder to myself if, like, that was an Ensign Mount just joking around on the set moment that they were yeah. like, let's run with it. Because well. that's insane. <laughs> it felt like that kind of crazy energy going on in that moment. But yeah, it's a show that's like, allowed to have fun even if like you know like this episode didn't have like the gravitas of some of the other episodes of strange new worlds but that's okay and i thought it was like letting itself have fun with its characters honestly my biggest concern with the episode i think actually you know i was speaking about pike there was actually involved with the pike story when we were on the serene squall and we were introduced to the um remy character the orion and i was like oh my God, like this villain is really not charismatic at all. He's not interesting. And I was having Gambit flashbacks where I was just like, I was making notes like furiously on my yellow legal pad about like, oh my God, I'm going to watch Pike punching down for an entire episode against a villain who's like kind of dumb. Yeah. Uh, you mean like, remember the nephew from season three of uh, Discovery? The uh orion nephew <laughs> just like oh are we gonna get yeah, yet another retreat of that once more who was the nephew i'm blanking i'm just thinking of the cowboy guy who oh, was like the nephew? remember osira had that nephew who was on that prison planets who kind of uh, oh yeah uh, essentially was the reason why everybody ended up escaping or at least he was in charge of them yeah and i mean you had that moment where pike like was talking to remy in the kitchen and Remy leaves and you see Pike just like smirk to himself. And I'm like, I made a note, like, I'm like, this is not like good drama. If my like hero is already acknowledging that this villain is like basically not up to the task of competing with him. Like, this isn't good. And I love that they pulled the rug out from me there. Well, it, and I was saying earlier, like, this is why the episode was a little touch and go for me for quite a while mm. until they had like that kind of reveal and what I'm guessing must have been like kind of maybe the fourth act, which is pretty late in the game, but it, it didn't enough to kind of like uh, revitalize the episode just uh, during my uh, real-time viewing experience there. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's weird because like, on one hand, the Dr. Aspen character, there was enough shades there to make you go, I think this character <laughs> might have a heel turn coming, yeah. just given the EDM music and the <laughs> um, like Borg Queen-like wardrobe. But at the same time, I was kind of taking it at face value to a degree, because like when they start introducing that the Orion villain, I'm like, I, I just I, for some reason, I just decided that, the, OK, this is the road we're going down. And it felt like 
this show in the past, we've talked about it and sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't, but it's played, you know, homage to um, a lot of classic Star Trek. And I really did start making notes like, okay, well, this really feels like their take on Gambit um, with, you know, some obviously nods to like Tholian Web and Starship Mine and stuff. But I was so, so thankful that they really did upset my expectations there. Yeah, I, I can ask you this. Um, where Where's Hammer? Yeah, I actually had that in my notes as well. Um, they should uh, have the sequel to this episode be called The Search for Hammer because um, that is a fascinating question. We had Spock, you know, in engineering, and I, I just kept wondering, like, where, where's Hammer? I, I know the actor is listed in the main credits. Is he really a main cast member, though? Or, or, or was he envisioned as being in the main cast as this show was in production? Because that was up for debate, like... Mentioned it last week, but during that Strange New World's primer, uh, there's a kind of uncertainty about whether or not he was actually in that main cast. The the, the primer I'm talking about our episode from just before the uh, the show premiered. I do wonder if it was a case of they wrote him as a recurring character, they realized what they had, you know, by the end of the season, and decided to make him a full fledged maybe you know, main title character, and next season we see more of him, episode to episode. That's my guess, but it still makes me wonder about what they're doing with Ortega. Like, it's yeah. seven episodes in, and she's kind of getting the Tasha Yar treatment, in which you've got a very charismatic actress who's kind of relegated to saying stuff like, aye aye, Captain. Yeah, like we got a, you know, fun little moment of her steering the ship manually and talking about how it's like a third date, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of a funny little quip, but quips aren't enough like you you can't just have this character sit there and make kind of like fun little jokes and that's the gist of the character you got to give a little more and you and i have been trying to guess when her episode would fall i mean we got three left i'd rule out the last one so i think we've only got episode eight or nine maybe it'll be kind of like hammer and like she doesn't get like a a full-fledged episode dedicated to her as well Possibly. And maybe that's something like in season two, it's a character that they'll be really expanding upon, hopefully like Hammer. Yeah. Uh, you talked about her steering the ship. Speaking of which, uh, uh, Pike with the ship's wheel navigating uh-huh. uh, at the end. Do you recall the last time, I, at least I think we saw a ship's wheel in uh, Star Trek? Was it Star Trek V? That's what I'm thinking of with the uh, kind of the redressed set of 10 forward from the next generation there. And I'm just like, okay, so to me, when I saw that ship's wheel, I automatically thought of Star Trek V. And then it was just even more hilarious to me when they had kind of the cyborg reveal at the very end as well. I mean, that shot of Pike at the (laughs) pirate steering wheel was one of the most incredible shots I've seen in Star Trek. You know what? (laughs) It might be the most fun shot in Star Trek in this entire new era. I had it written down with like multiple asterisks next to it. I was like, this is incredible. And the fact that the show knew how funny it was and how like, I mean, fans are probably going to be going crazy over that one. I I can imagine we're going to see screen caps of this for many, many years to come. Well, certainly uh, there will be gifs of the uh, Pike as a pirate uh, impersonation. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Anson Mount has really kicked open the door for all sorts of fun stuff to do with Pike in the future. And that's something that Pike was always very ill-defined when you look at like the cage or the menagerie. And we had sort of dad in space, 
you know, being introduced in Discovery Season 2, and that's carried on into Strange New Worlds. But I think we're going to see maybe some loopier stuff than perhaps we expected just jumping off of Discovery. So I am here for it. Like, if this is an actor who wants to have fun with the character, and clearly the show is willing to strike the right tone where actors can do that sort of thing, have at it, sir. Go nuts. Maybe he was just fighting against that Boy Scout moniker that uh, he was given against his will at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> well, that's that's entirely possible, too. I mean, the Boy Scout thing is, it's a fun thing for him to fight against, even though I think Pike, probably of the captains, falls into the Boy Scout mold the best, probably. What about Archer? What about Archer? Archer? Hmm... I mean, I wouldn't call him a Boy Scout when he's like throwing people in the airlock, but um, he does have much more of that kind of straight-laced company man kind of attitude, definitely, yeah, the first couple seasons. But I wonder if it's because he's so rough around the edges as like an explorer in space, he kind of doesn't fall into the Boy Scout mold because Boy Scouts kind of follow the rules of conduct to a certain degree, and Archer didn't have those rules of conduct. I just can't help but flash back to the Gizel speech, Cam, you know. Uh, if he's not a Boy Scout, then he's a troop leader in my eyes. You know, the sign of any great Star Trek captain is if you give them kind of crazy things to do that we can really hold dear. And that Gazelle speech is a really great one for Archer. Picard has a ton of them. Kirk has a lot of them. And I'm really excited that they're giving Pike a lot of those moments in this show. It's something like, I wish Burnham wasn't dealt with so self-seriously because I'd like to see more fun moments with that character we could call back on too. What is the funnest Burnham moment? If Just top of your head. Um, there's two that jump to mind. I think one, I think they thought Let's Fly would be one, but it's not. Um, I would say the, the episode where she's like whacked out on like, was it like gas or drugs or something at the season three premiere uh, yeah. is probably the one that jumps to mind. Yeah, I guess so. Like it, it's kind of slim pickings. There's been a couple moments where Sonequa Martin-Green got to be really goofy on the show. So I know there's a few there that maybe we're forgetting. There is the card game um, last season, um, but I would say a lot of them were more like swings and misses. Yeah. Um, I don't know that they really grabbed people in the way that, you know, the other ones have. Like Janeway has a lot of them too. So it just felt like they've never really found a way to give Burnham ones that, you know, it became those memes that people really like. Yeah, you mean like uh, dressing up uh, Picard in the uh, eye patch and beret and giving him that French accent in season one. Like that perfectly fun moment with uh, one uh, Admiral Picard there. Well, that's definitely a case of them trying to invent one. Yeah. And falling flat on their face with it. Did they try anything in season two, Picard, with him? Um, They put him in a tuxedo and he spent two episodes trying to get into a party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like they didn't really give him any sort of like fun um, L.A. based moments. Um, fish out of water type stuff. Uh, yeah, I guess not. But you know what? In serialized Star Trek, it's self-serious. You can't it, do those sorts is. of things. I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I like Chapel using her hypo spray as a combat weapon. You know, it's kind of been used before, obviously, to knock somebody out, uh, you know, inconspicuously. But uh, I, I don't really recall it being used in kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat the way that we saw Chapel doing it at the start of the invasion of the ship. I have vague memories of... Um, Dr. McCoy possibly doing this. 
on the original series. But do not ask me the episode or anything like that. I just, I feel like it's something I've seen before, but not in a way that was like as fun and showy as this. Like it feels like it was more like just kind of a quick kind of moment. Whereas here, I thought that was a really good moment for the character because like um, Chapel on the show, like on TOS was like a fun character, but not as like dynamic as what they're giving her to do on this show. So yeah, a moment like this, give her her starship mind moment where she gets to take someone out. Um, any final thoughts on your part before we jump over to the latest uh, uh, Orti Wan Cam Nobi <laughs> uh, episode review? I did have one uh, other thought, which is just space pirates on Star Trek. Now, there's, you know, going back to the original series, there's a few. There's also like the Pirates of Orion episode in the animated series. But was the last time we really dealt with space pirates the finale of Enterprise? I, I, would you consider like Osira to be a space pirate or just the leader of a uh, uh, more of an authoritarian regime that would practice more of these, what we would now consider more kind of pirate-esque techniques? Yeah, I mean, the Emerald Chain was more of like a crime syndicate, it felt like. I mean, you can definitely make the argument, but I think there's tends to be a bit of a depiction of sort of more of a piratey style thing like we saw here or in that episode of um, Enterprise that I wouldn't say Osira really displayed. Uh, yeah. Uh, are there space pirates in, let's say, Lower Decks? Like, none jump to mind at this point. Nothing yet, no. Yeah. Okay, no. so yeah, it may have been um, the best space pirates the whole galaxy has to offer from These Are the Voyages. Yeah, well, I think this may have redeemed space pirates after these are the voyages because that was a tragic use of space pirates. <laughs> well, I I do feel that the um, the makeup, uh, not not the hair on the Orion uh, Captain uh, Remy, but mm. the the makeup on him, I thought it looked better and like less plastic than what we saw from the Orions on Star Trek Discovery, where it just it had this weird sheen to it that yeah. I, I I thought the makeup in Enterprise looked better. 15 years ago. I was divided over that in that I it, I agree it looked better, but I was wondering if it was also because the actor had so much facial hair that it didn't have it as front and center as those other actors on like Discovery where it's like that makeup was just front and center. There was nothing to distract from it. But it's like there's still this just weird plastically kind of look to it that we saw in Discovery that w at least wasn't visible to me. And that might just even be kind of a cinematography lighting sort of thing, too. That is entirely possible because this show is not lit the way that Discovery is either. Like, it has a real brightness to it that's not the approach they have on Discovery. Well, Cam, uh, we have entered into the, the final stretch of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, I, I This show is not one that necessarily thrills me. But there's, and I, I wonder how much, like, my, my favorite parts of the latest episode, Chapter 5, was more just kind of a, a member berries consuming me and that I get to see Anakin and Obi-Wan in a flashback dueling each other and Anakin's flaws kind of being exposed. Like, that's the stuff that I liked, whereas mm -hmm. I, I know a lot of people, like, pointing out the moment where, you know, Darth Vader reaches for the transport ship and he pulls it down with all his might. Look at how powerful he is. Uh, he looks like a dope by the end of it. Like, did he not see it? There's another transport ship parked directly next to it that he's just ignoring that entire time? 
I liked the way they built this episode around this duel of Obi-Wan and Anakin and highlighting what the flaws are of Anakin. Even though uh, Anakin is stronger and able to, you know, basically knock down Obi-Wan and they're kind of evoking um, the end of Return of the Jedi where Luke is basically beating uh, Vader down there with the lightsabers. But the way that they set that up and that because of this sort of endless determination and drive of Anakin and anger that he's kind of blind to an attack that could be coming in a way that's not front and, you know, center. So like, I like the idea of building an episode around that duel and then paying that off at the end. But like, I agree the other shuttle behind it, it was the sort of reveal that makes sense cinematically to a viewer because that other ship is obscured, but to be Vader standing there, I don't know that it makes any sense. Well, that's, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. It's like, it was obscured to the audience but it would not have been obscured to him. And yeah. if it was, then he's got to get uh, his robot gear checked out or something like that. I, but you, you did bring up a good point that I was thinking uh, as well. Is what, what they're trying to do essentially is kind of show th these kind of parallel stories and how you know Vader slash Anakin still has these same flaws and weaknesses that he's always possessed. But I don't know, like it, it didn't do much for me with regards to rehabilitating Anakin as a character. It, it was still... I, I've always wondered if like Hayden Christensen just got kind of a bad luck of the draw being directed by George Lucas, who's not an actor's director. No. And you have a di different director coming in, and it was still Hayden Christensen's performance. I just I still found kind of irritating, and I was just like, oh, maybe like I I haven't necessarily like uh been annoyed by Hayden Christensen in other properties, but it's also like he hasn't had like this prolific post Star Wars career either. No, I mean, it's interesting we're talking about this episode and Hayden Christensen in the same you know week we're talking about um, Cybok, another character that like, good idea, but poor execution and really left kind of a stain on that property. Um, and with Anakin, it's something where I don't know there's that much they can do. And I think that's the problem because they're trying to remain true to the Anakin of this moment we see in this episode would have fallen, you know, sometime before the events of episode three. So they have to stay within the parameters of that character as written in during those films. And it, it's not a well-written character or a well-directed character. So like, there's only so much you can do. And I, I think they're kind of dealing with a broken concept here where with some, uh, with Cybok, I have some hope because the stuff we're going to be dealing with is, well before you know final frontier it doesn't feel as wedged into continuity that already pre exists can i ask you this uh, why did spock have to say uh and master sarek had a child out of wedlock like <laughs> i was just to me i was just it gave me pause like what, what were they trying to signal there like oh, okay like i'll tell you what the writers are thinking like they want to make it clear that this is not amanda's son mm-hmm did they have to say because out of wedlock? Because like I, I wonder if they unintentionally, you know, gave the idea that like a child born out of wedlock is more likely to end up in a criminal <laughs> rehabilitation center. Like I'm sure that wasn't the intention. Yeah, I, I, I just it was it was a very weird way of introducing the character, and it wasn't necessary to do it that way. Yeah, I suspect it was to highlight that it's not um, Amanda's child. And they didn't quite think through the 
potential ramifications of stating it in that particular way. Has Burnham ever met Cybok, do you think? No, I don't think so. I, I don't... Just the way they set it up on Discovery, it feels like Cybok was entirely removed from, like, Spock's life. And it's, you know, the reunion in Star Trek V is really the first time they've seen each other. Did they... Like, I ever, have to go back. Do you think that they, like, they never saw each other prior to Star Trek V? Did they give any sense of familiarity in Star Trek V? It's been a while since I watched it. Like, my sense is they must have crossed paths. Like, they didn't necessarily have to grow up in the same household, but they must have yeah. crossed paths at a certain point. Or else, what's the point of making him uh, a half-brother then if there's not some sort of familiarity? Like, how invested are you in any of this relationship? Then it's just it's just genes. And it's like, eh, yeah, we, sh- we share genes. Like, whatever. I would guess that Star Trek V's intention was to indicate a certain level of familiarity, like they did know each other, but I almost feel like they might retcon that to make Cybok this separate element now that we've established that, you know, Burnham was such an important part of his life growing up. Well, you know, uh, maybe maybe Burnham will have a throwaway line in season five, you know, like, uh, yeah. remember that time that my foster half-brother born out of wedlock just popped over <laughs> for uh, Vulcan Thanksgiving? That was awkward. <laughs> it's entirely possible with Discovery. Who yeah. knows at this point? But um, yeah, he, back he brought to... he brought cake to uh to uh Thanksgiving dinner, and that's when I learned the phrase "cake is eternal." A classic Vulcan saying, said at every dinner. <laughs> uh, Obi Wan Cam, this is how interested we are in this episode of Obi Wan. We're 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 going back to Cybok. Well, I mean, this was one of the better Obi-Wan episodes. I'll say that, I guess. But yeah, yeah. That's, it's not a high bar. Um, it had an example of something I just hate, though, like that really drove me crazy. Actually, I'll give you two examples of things right. that I can't stand. Uh, we'll start with the, the first one, and we can talk about that, which is we had the, the revelation of Reva, the villain, that she was one of the younglings who survived and is now hunting Darth Vader. I don't know that this makes any sense with anything she's been doing throughout the season. But nonetheless, we see her get stabbed in the stomach with a lightsaber. And then Vader, known to be a very tolerant guy, was like, well, let's just leave her behind, this person that tried to kill me. I don't know. Like, I've seen Vader kill a lot of admirals just for, like, minor screw-ups. And clearly, this is a classic case of Vader has read the finale script, and Reva's important. (laughs) Well, that's just it. But like he, he said said that line. You know, something along the lines of like you know, uh, nothing better than vengeance to pull you back from the brink of death. And of course, he's talking about himself there in that moment. He, I think, he left her on the brink of death on purpose, and hoping that it would spark something within her. As you know, yeah, it's uh, of course he read the script for the finale that that's clear at this point but it it seems as if she's not going to be chasing after vader right it's going to be luke somehow just don't you get the sense there's going to be there's going to be a lot going on in this finale for them to kind of tie things up or else it could pull like a star trek picard thing where you think there's a lot going on and (laughs) there's a whole lot of nothing going on that they tie up in the finale i'm just really concerned that luke could be in danger like, I know. Like, do you think he survives the, the end of the season, Cam? 
I don't know. I don't know. Like I was up all night after watching that episode, just very concerned about how this was going to impact the future of the Star Wars storytelling. And we're not even sure if Leia ever makes it back to safety either, right? We do not know. And actually, that cues me for another thing that I really am annoyed by in Star Wars and something that uh, people took great issue with with the prequels, which is the writing of children in Star Wars. I have no problem with child characters. I think they can actually work. But why are children not allowed to be children? And when I'm watching like Leia do like engineering yeah. tasks, I'm like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. We saw her like facing off against you know, Reva, like outsmarting her in an interrogation situation. Now I'm watching her like save the day through an engineering feat. Like, I get it. They want child empowerment moments. But like, I don't know about you. When I was a kid, I didn't tune into things like Star Wars or Indiana Jones, just desperate for children like me. I was like aspiring to be characters like Indiana Jones or Han Solo or Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, whoever, like the heroes of those stories who are adults. I didn't want to like graft myself onto other like nine-year-olds. Who was the quintessential like nine-year-old hero uh, like when we were growing up? You know, like I- I'm trying to think. Was it like Elliot Thomas or, or something like that? Like it-, it wasn't the kids from Jurassic Park. Uh, it- for me, it was always uh, Alan Grant. You know, like I- in adulthood, it's it's now kind of Dr. Ian Malcolm, but um as a kid, it was Alan Grant that I thought was, like, totally badass. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the only... I'm trying to think of, like, my generation. Who would be, like, a child hero that you would say unequivocally really worked as someone children could identify with and really championed? The only one that jumps to mind is Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. Yeah, yeah. Or um, Jonathan Brandis in uh, The NeverEnding Story 2. Sure, yeah. Um, maybe The Karate Kid? Yeah, actually, that that's not bad. Um, yeah, although, like, Ralph Macchio was, like, 35 when he was shooting The Karate Kid, but nonetheless. <laughs> or, speaking of um, Macaulay Culkin, what about his character from The Page Master? <laughs> I never saw The Page Master. <laughs> yeah, neither did I. <laughs> there was, like, that string of Macaulay Culkin films in the wake of Home Alone that I just did not see. There was that. There was, oh, what was the ballot? Was it The Nutcracker? The Nutcracker? Oh, what about, uh, yeah. did, uh, did you ever watch My Girl? Yes, I saw that, and I saw Getting Even with Dad and Richie Rich. Uh, yeah, I saw Getting Even with Dad because it horrified me how long both Ted Danson and Macaulay Culkin, the, their hair, their respective hairdos were. <laughs> um, what also horrified me is like watching, like, um, spoiler alert for a thirty-year-old movie, but like watching the end of My Girl, where like, mm. like Macaulay Culkin's character dies by a beehive. And, yeah. and like watching that as a child, that, that was traumatizing to me. Like I, at that point in my life, I thought there's a 50-50% chance I'd die either through quicksand or beehive Like at, at that point in my life. I was attacked by bees as a child, actually. It's very scary. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. I mean, I've been, I was stung as a kid and it's just like, I don't know. Like, like you, isn't it weird how like you kind of you grow up just to be told like bees are like one of the scariest things in the world? Yeah, I was like playing in the woods and they there was like a pile of rocks in the woods and I was like picking up the rocks and throwing them around. I'm probably like five or six years old or something. And I guess I, you know, there was like a hornet's nest or a bee's nest or something that I awakened and I got swarmed. And I remember I was at my dad's soccer game and they had to like lay me down and I got, I was okay, but I definitely had to, I think, swing by a friend's house and they were like putting stuff on me to like you know, treat the stings. So yeah, I did have a close call with bees once in my life. 
<laughs> you sound like uh, Macaulay Culkin in My Girl. <laughs> well, I could relate to it. When I saw My Girl, and I remember I watched it at day camp, um, that moment did ring true. I mean, I'm not allergic to bees, so I wasn't in that sort of mortal peril, but uh, scary, for sure. This is how interested we are in the latest episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> okay, I have something I'd like to talk to you about with Obi-Wan, though. Yeah, this okay. is a show called Obi-Wan. Is this show at all interested in the character of Obi-Wan? I don't know. Like, what am I learning about this character? Other than, like, wasn't he kind of this weirdo hermit the, the first time we ever met him? Yeah. And I'm I'm just, like, my feeling is, like, we're supposed to be kind of connecting the dots between where he goes from you know, Revenge of the Sith to where we find him in A New Hope. And he just, he, I, I don't know how they've connected any of those dots so far. It, it, it's kind of like it, it's watching like uh, Obi-Wan as played by Eeyore at this point. <laughs> and they're setting up this whole like Obi-Wan needs to learn that he needs to fight for what he believes in. But I don't know, is that what he does by the time we roll around in A New Hope? Yes, he's willing to, you know, team up with Luke and Han and all that and go and save Princess Leia. But I don't know, he seemed like he was pretty much just a hermit hanging out on Tatooine and then answered the call at that point in time. So is this whole mm -hmm. is this whole series, although it sounds like they're going to greenlight a second season of Obi-Wan, but nonetheless, like, is this arc just... Obi-Wan is open to adventure, and that's kind of the arc of what they're doing, I guess. Well, if they give it a second season, what they need to do, though, is, like, like Obi-Wan needs to come back, and there needs to be some levity. There needs to be this kind of looseness within the character. Like, he needs to be having fun at some points. Because the self-seriousness, like, it's... The show kind of feels like a drag to watch versus kind of the adventure that we were so used to with, with most of these movies. You know, like... I'd say that the prequels a little, a little bit more self-serious. Um, you know, <laughs> I say that about Jar Jar Binks is uh, ever present, <laughs> but you know, and, and, and like the the follow-ups with uh, JJ and Ryan Johnson, like um, I thought the first two were were fine enough. It's like the the Rise of Skywalker is a disaster, but at least they were trying to make those fun. You know, mm -hmm. I just I don't get the sense like I, Boba. That did not feel fun. No. This one doesn't feel fun. Like, watching Mando, they, they have kind of the, the, the pathos going on, but there's also, like, it's fun to watch as well. And I think that's why, you know, Boba Fett, like, really lit up when you bring Mando back and, and Mando's mythology back into the Star Wars universe, too. Just the other night, I was at um, Return of the Jedi Live, um, where we had the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra composing the score, or playing the score from Return of the Jedi while the movie's playing. It was a phenomenal experience. That crowd went absolutely just crazy. Tyler, you were with us at uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, this crowd rivaled that one, if not exceeded wow. it, when wow. you had like the uh, explosion of the Death Star at the end of that film and stuff, and just how powerful that score is to hear live. But um, I coming out of that movie, I was just talking to my sister about it, and I was saying like these like sophisticated simplicity of the storytelling of those original three films has never been followed up on. Like when you look at what they're doing with the prequels and everything since they've made it more complex and more convoluted and they've lost that sort of high spirited fun, carry you by the seat of your pants kind of energy, the sort of thing that also the, you know, Indiana Jones series traded in. And 
I don't think these shows are carrying it very well either. And maybe they're not interested in that because Star Wars has just evolved over time. But it was hard to think that as I'm sitting in this crowd watching this, you know, 30 plus year old movie, a crowd losing their minds. It's multi-generational. There was people who were probably like 85 years old in that crowd and also children. I was having a tough time imagining in 30 years crowds having similar responses to what they're doing on Obi-Wan or, you know, these more recent Star Wars movies. Can I ask you this? Um, how do they approach the drumming in the live orchestral uh, experience when it came to the Ewoks celebrating? And you know how they're like playing drums on the Stormtroopers uh, helmets? Do they did they do anything fun with that? They do. I don't know if they did with the drums because the thing with the drums is when they did the special editions, they changed the music. So it's more of a just symphony score as opposed to the classic Ewok sing-along song. So like there's no audio coming off the drums in that moment now in the special editions. So that part, no. But there was parts during the Battle of Endor where the Ewoks are up in the trees like blowing the horns and the symphony was doing the horns. Okay, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. ah, overall uh, how would you rate that experience that was i've gone to many of those um orchestra performances of movie scores that was maybe the best it might have been the best it was really incredible remember we went uh we went and saw jurassic park god probably five or six years ago at, through that orchestra experience and the sound mixing for the first half was so off mm -hmm. and uh listeners Cam and I, we are not joking here. There literally were not any dinosaur roars for the first half of the movie. It, like, I, I, it was kind of embarrassing like how awkward that was in, in a movie called Jurassic Park. I'll imitate the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex roar. There it is. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, brings me right back to that moment. Yeah, it's one of those things with live music, things can go wrong. And it was interesting just with the Star Wars score that like, when you got to those end battles, like the score, you realize just how loud that score as composed by John Williams is, where it does like override like the dialogue of the movie. Although Star Wars were kind of designed almost as silent films, so it didn't matter. And fortunately, they've got the subtitles on the screen as well. But it just like the the power of that music really worked well. The only one that like I've seen a few of the other Star Wars movies, the first two, those worked incredibly well also. But the one that jumps to mind that was a lot of fun was actually Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Just the sight of seeing those like violin players just beating the hell out of their violins to make the <laughs> Psycho you know, stabbing sting is something I won't forget. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Cam, uh, I guess we'll be back next week with uh, the finale for uh, Obi-Wan. Yeah. I don't know if the show can quite revitalize itself <laughs> just through one episode. Uh, if they get a season two, which, as you said, it sounds more likely that'll happen. I, I, I hope they've learned some lessons and go from there. And uh, yeah, we'll also be back, I guess, with uh, episode eight of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, three episodes to go in this uh, inaugural season. It's just it's really whizzed by. Yeah, um, there's I don't know, like I like I'm curious what the last few episodes will mean for the show and that like. You wonder how much kind of like they've been kind of planting seeds for things, whether it means like the return of Angel, Cybok, uh, another Gorn appearance. Um, you wonder if those things will come to fruition in the tale 
end or if it's more like yeah yeah it's something we can pick up in season two but either way i'm, I'm, I'm kind of i'm pumped for wherever this show goes next well what are your bets what do you think will be you know revisited by the you know probably the finale like three episodes isn't that much do you think they're going to be you know a number of return appearances over those three or do you think we're going to have kind of two standalone and then one aspect of these setup elements returning in the finale I would be surprised if we see Cybok next week. I would figure episode nine. Uh-huh. I would be surprised if we see the Gorn next week. I would figure maybe a part of episode nine or ten. I don't expect to see the psycho cult planet from last week. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily expect a return by the end of this season, but I would generally be surprised if, did I say generally? I would genuinely be surprised if we did not see a return to that storyline by season two. Because just, you, you pointed out, it just seemed as if there's kind of some unfinished business there. Yeah, and I think Angel will likely wait until season two. That's my guess. I, I figure if Cybox back by the end of the season, they'll bring her back too. That's my guess. Yeah. It's funny because the show, this episode, really did throw a curveball to me in that I really did just anticipate a Gorn-centric finale. And now suddenly it's like, oh, oh, maybe we're going to be just having the Gorn in the background as a threat throughout the run of this series, but we're going to pay off Cybok at the end of the season. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's a Cybok-Gorn <laughs> team-up that, <laughs> that inevitably <laughs> leads him to Paradise City. Hold on. I got it. I got it. It's Cybok riding on top of a Gorn into battle. <laughs> and the Gorn has like a little unicorn horn too, right? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. <laughs> okay. You can, of course, also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in Vulcan Prisoner Smith. Uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N as in Nimbus 3, the home of Paradise City. Okay. So until next time... Let's keep those transporters hot and trade some lovers. Transfer complete.